understanding this condition that there is an employer and there is an employee and that we're not all the same was really important, specifically in the sector of architecture where first we get out of, uh, of, we graduate with this uh, idea that we're all going to be our own, um, we're going to be on our own and doing our own projects and so on. And then suddenly, but the sector works in a completely different way. There's uh, 87% of, of people working in architecture are actually employees. Uh, so we're, it's not the liberal profession that had, that we've been taught. Welcome to Street Sweeper. I'm Will. I'm Ricardo. We are today interviewing two uh, militant members uh, of the uh, architectural workers' movement in Portugal, who has, which has officially founded the Architectural Workers' Union uh, in the past 30th of April. That's right, right? Yeah. Is that 30th of April? Yeah. We are interviewing... Uh, Cristina Cristina Pinho, correct. Uh, who you already heard in our tiny little interview in the after party, mm-hmm. uh, in the on the very day, which we published uh, shortly after, and uh, Catarina Ruivo, uh, another one that you haven't heard uh, yet. Uh, I guess like I guess like I have to do a kind of a nepotism <laughs> alert. Catarina Ruivo happens to be my sister. <laughs> So, collusion and uh, uh, nepotism uh, alert. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, we, the, the, the point of this is essentially to have experienced, people who have experienced what it is to organize architectural workers at the national scale and uh, in the end actually managing to form a national architectural workers union to share the experience, to talk mm-hmm. about, to talk about what that was, uh, to tell the like how it evolved, the contradictions, the difficulties, the potentials of the of the process, uh, the kind of work that was done and how it changed over time, blah blah blah. Right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's this is essentially what we we would like to to cover, um, and uh, hopefully uh, kind of clarify, give tips. Um, uh, I, we hope that this episode is useful uh, also for existing movements of the same kind. Uh, and hopefully we will even, like in the future, get all of you talking to each other and establish uh, kind of brotherly uh, ties of cooperation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you for having us, I guess. This was... Uh, do, you, do you want to like introduce yourself, to tell your names, just, just so people associate names with um, voices? Sure. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm Katarina. Uh, also, our names are very similar, so uh, there's, that's that. Oh, yeah, that's going to be amazing for confusing, <laughs> confusing Anglos about it. <laughs> uh, my name is Christina, and, um, and I wanted to thank you for your invitation to have us here. It's, um, it's a great opportunity to... Uh, 
to present a little bit of what we've done so far and and it would be amazing if it somehow helps other movements as well yeah we're going to start with uh just kind of a general overview of what the what what building the union was um as, as the conversation moves on, I think we're going to go into more details and more like uh, an expected, counterintuitive, like learning process that it was uh, to kind of organize workers in the profession of architecture. Um, I think that's, there's going to be plenty to, to talk about there. Uh, but uh, why don't you start for now, just like how the thing like started? Like, what was the process that led to there being a movement for the creation of a labor union of architectural workers? I think I can start uh, because I was there from the beginning. Um, and I think this is also, I, I can also address uh, the, the nepotism issue because I think it gives a little bit of uh, an insight uh, on how the movement works. Um, so <laughs> I can start by saying that I'm not uh, in the movement anymore. Uh, because they are organizing as a union now and I'm not working in architecture, which is something I think we're going to address further on in the conversation. Uh, Mm -hmm. So now it's here. Um, So uh, I wasn't there when uh, they decided that I should be here uh, talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) And so someone from the movement just came to me, like he's a friend of mine, he just came to me and said, informed me. Uh, we've discussed this in the movement and you're going to be in your brother's podcast. <laughs> I, I complained for a while, but I said yes, because that's kind of what you do when the group says that they need you, we need you to do this. And I think the decision had a lot to do with me not being in the movement anymore, so I'm not busy doing more important stuff <laughs> but at the same time i was there totally from, fair. <laughs> from the beginning until like last month so i i know how things went and what happened and like there's christina to complete everything i don't know uh, because what they're doing now um so that's it. I think it's fair as well, even though I complained a little bit because I honestly... But it was a, a collective decision, yeah. so there's nothing you can do about that. Exactly. <laughs> the collective decided. Evil, evil democratic centralism applies to people who are not even in the organization. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I'm here. It's a pleasure, but I hate talking, so let's see how, it, how this goes. <laughs> and now uh, about... Uh, the movement and like the very start, um, we started organizing, um, we wanted to organize something that had to do with work conditions in architecture. We started talking about that in late 2018. Um, And then a few months after that, we had a meeting, the first meeting in February, uh, in February of 2019. Uh, and so the people that were first involved in organizing this meeting, which was uh, a debate organized in a coffee shop, uh, and that we just um, we just talk about it on social media and with our friends. And so it wasn't like anything very formal at the time. And so the people that went to that meeting and organized that meeting, um, many of them had graduated around 2013, 2014. 
which is a, an important, uh, this is important uh, because as you know, Ricardo very well, this architecture workers movement wasn't the first attempt at organizing something like this that had to do with architecture workers' rights and working conditions. Um, well, Ricardo was a, a very active member of a group that organized around this kind of issues. And I think it was in 2010 or it was 2012. Yeah, it was a roughly, yeah, it was 2010 to 12, I think. Yeah, so that was... Uh, well, I, 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 finished, I, finished, I, I, I finished my degree at, in 2009 and it was basically the next year. It was while I was doing my internship. Yeah. And... lasted <clears throat> for a couple of years. That was like the peak of the economic crisis in Portugal, right? Yeah. Because no one, no one had a job in architecture. Uh, we have data that says uh, like there was unemployment. It was 20% of people were unemployed in architecture. And I also remember from Ricardo and his friends um, that people were just had moved out of the country or doing other stuff. Like so many people didn't have a job back then. And so that means like that you guys face challenges that we didn't have when we organized in 2019 uh, because there was work in architecture. Um, with... Yeah, you guys, you guys, your generation graduated basically just as the tourist bubble was yeah. beginning and th there was basically jobs doing uh, Airbnb, Airbnb projects. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, we have, we've looked at data from the European Council of Architects, is, is that it? Uh, that said that unemployment was at 2% in architecture. This figure, of course, is not really <laughs> reliable because they, the way they sample, like the university used to sample data is not um, valid. Um, it, it's a very small percentage of architects who are um, who are uh, members of like the equivalent to RIVA, RBA. So that's not a valid universe, but we also like felt it. Uh, yeah, you're only a member if you have a job. There's no yeah, reason to be a exactly. No one who doesn't have a job is a member. It's yeah, no one is like paying. Uh, paying. It's basically asking the people yeah. who have jobs if they have jobs. Not to mention the people who graduate from architecture programs and then basically give up on working in the sector. Yeah, yeah. They don't count either. Yeah, they don't count either. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the number is not really uh, reliable, but also uh, we were in the field and that was also the idea that we had, that unemployment was not that high, that people had jobs in, like my friends and people graduated with me. Uh, pretty much everyone was working in Porto. Um, even people who had moved out uh, in 2014 uh, were coming back, like, I don't know if it's kind of like Christina. What happened with you? No, uh, in my case, it was a little bit different, or, and it's it's uh, funny how uh, just a few years of difference made um, um, changed completely the conditions. But I was still in the group of people that graduated that just didn't have jobs. Uh, when it, did you graduate? In two thousand and eleven. Mm -hmm. So it's it it was a difference of two three years. 
that uh, and I in 2013 I, um, uh, I I left the country and actually uh, I remember six months later I came to to visit or a few months later I came to visit and Porto was already in that boom of uh, tourism and new bars and restaurants are opening up and I couldn't recognize the city. And that was, uh, and I, I think it was the, the, the shift that you, that you caught and the group of people that got together in that coffee shop <laughs> uh, that all had jobs. Was it a tourism, was it a gentrification coffee shop? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. <laughs> There was a art exhibition at the same time. It was, time. It was all of you, an art exhibition, oh, right. And it was, like, it was you and Germans. <laughs> all of you and Germans were there. Um, yeah, it was a gentrification coffee shop for, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, it... Gentrification so... will create the conditions for its own overthrow. <laughs> <laughs> Capitalism will sell you the art ex exhibition in which you'll hang it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that will be an installation. <laughs> that's interesting. Then that it was you're actually like beginning organizing in a time of relative security in work. Yeah, I think it was an important. It's very very obvious why. It's a, it, it's a good example of how, why like conditions getting worse. There's a kind of an instinctive uh, response on, on by many people like on the left. Like conditions are getting worse, so people will rebel. That's not always the case. It depends. It can be the case, but not necessarily. In this example, architectural workers could not organize while conditions were bad because they weren't even in the country to organize. Right. <laughs> like the the organization I started with a couple of like a group of other people that we had the wrong approach to what we were doing. We wanted to take over the Portuguese RIDA instead of doing a union. Um, I also think there was a process of further subjective radicalization to make that jump into just straight up, we're going to do a union. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but our uh, the, what we were doing stopped being possible because two of the three key organizers left the country. Right. <laughs> like the organization fell apart because it was mostly being uh, like the three main organizers and me and another a good friend of mine and a good, another good friend of mine. Um, and two of us left. Went over to Brazil and out to London. That's it. And I guess in, in this case, and maybe uh, you, you guys can tell, tell us more, there was still some idea of forming the union or still some uh, continuity from the crisis in workers' kind of perception of their position. Like there was still some sort of subjective uh, momentum from the crisis and from previous attempts to organize? Um, my understanding was that actually the idea, I came into the movement uh, much later, but my idea is that the, the idea of building a union came much later uh, when at the group discussion, uh, it went into that direction, but there was still the need to create an idea of collectiveness that that didn't really exist in the beginning that was people were really spread out and quite um approaching their own working conditions in quite an individualistic uh way mm -hmm. uh so f before creating the i before even 
even thinking about creating a union, there was the need to uh, everyone feeling that you needed to act as a group. And only after that, when that was set up in stone, then the union came, I think. Yeah, I think there are two important um, issues here that we're, we're talking at the same time. One is this, the creating a collective that um, could withstand if two of its members, important members, went away. So this was a, a, a very important lesson that we learned from you, that we learned from you, that um, we had to have a um, large enough core group of people who were engaged and responsible uh, so that uh, if things happened and people had to leave and our people couldn't be as active, which happens a lot. Uh, people have other things going in life and right. so people come and go, but there is always a you know, large core group uh, to keep the thing going. And it's something that takes a lot of work to accomplish. So that was a, yeah. a big lesson. That's why, you, that's why we didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> a, a very important lesson from your experience. But at the same time, I think there was a clear break. Um, there's not a continuity from um, that momentum. Because in 2012, uh, those years around that period, it was not only in architecture, but there were a lot of movements, uh, like workers' movements um, that were springing up, up, springing around in the country, yeah. like big demos, um, like the largest demonstrations that I probably remember. Yeah, this, was in the, my this, life. Was the, this was the peak of the uh, of the austerity troika period in Portugal. Right. The IMF plan for selling the entire country uh, in bits to uh, private capital, but usually foreign, interestingly. Um, and it was uh, like a tragic moment, uh, which was also the kind of most glorious explosion of uh, labor mobilization and organizing in Portugal. Uh, kind of a half a million people demo in Lisbon. There was like two of them in a year and four mm. general strikes in a year. <laughs> uh, I don't know which year exactly, but around that time. Yeah, around that time, yeah. I remember this, and I also um, think that there was a, like, it's a completely different period when we started. It, it was not in the continuity of that. It was a different moment. Yeah. Um, hmm. Most people who were there at the beginning um, were in, still studying during those uh, years, 2012. Many of us weren't even in the country. Um, and so it was, it had very much to do with the conditions of that very moment that were everyone at jobs. There were a lot of people in Port Portugal and uh, a lot of people in Porto specifically because this is where the movement started. And at the same time, like the working conditions were terrible, very, very bad. Uh, and right. so I think there is a, there is an element of continuity there. Uh, between the two periods, which is like it was a very short period of time between no one having jobs, but and everyone having jobs, but relatively low paid and no not, conditions not particularly good. Um, I think the workers who are in those conditions not only know that the conditions aren't good, 
they also know that very, very recently, no one like them had jobs. And so, and so that it's not a natural, eternal condition for them to have jobs even. Like there is, there's always the kind of, and especially because the, it's obvious for everyone that those jobs are articulated, are deeply connected to a specific market bubble that is at the very same time, the very same people are critiquing, right? The workers who have jobs in architecture feel that their jobs are very conditional on an economy that they themselves think is not very good. <laughs> yeah, right? because the economy makes the, their lives unlivable as well. Yeah, like it gives them jobs in architecture, but it also raises the rents yeah. higher than it raises their salaries. Yeah, that's the, at this point, it's ridiculous, that disparity. Because, uh, as you said, the architecture work in Portugal grew very connected to the tourism bubble. Um, and, Which is a real estate bubble. Yeah. And that meant in Portugal that like the tourism, tourism work is like small refurnishings of apartments for Airbnb. That means a lot of small offices pop up and those small offices are very unstable and unreliable in terms of employment because they don't, they have sporadic work as well. And uh, so it's a snowball of, of everything being connected with yeah. like what we are producing and the conditions in which we work. Yeah. Like the, the small offices are doing work in that which fundamental function is to raise the market value of basically the house right next to where they are, which then raises their own rent. Uh, that more than this, even the small office, the small employer is able to pay for this office uh, space. And then the worker is also needing to pay more rent for their flat. And yeah. they're not getting a, a salary increase. And there's that, uh, there's that, but also uh, if somehow the 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 profession and the the was uh, and the workers' conditions were protected somehow, um, it wouldn't get to the point that it did, where wages were so low that in average they were about at eight hundred and seventy euros per month, and every time. Um, we talk about low wages, that's one thing. And then you, you say this number and it becomes shocking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, the biggest issue... Especially as the rents in Porto are becoming basically as, the same as the rents in London. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're everything. Because, because they're people, it's yeah. people from London paying them. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But, yeah it's, um, a, it's a Europe-wide uh, real estate market. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, more and more. Larger. But but the main um, the main thing here was that the the working the, the workers were not protected. So the uh, what that uh, what that boom created was a, a, a an amazing um, moment for to to explore workers even more and to get the the most out of them because there were people making money in this whole situation. That and that's the big and that and that's the thing that. Uh, was also important to realize is not it, because if we talk about uh, how all the offices were so precarious and and unstable and so on, I, I mean obviously that that is that is true for part of them, 
But uh, if you are going to become an employer, there has to be minimum conditions that are going to be respected. And these were were the ones that are not being respected over and over again. And you could see still that there was a lot of work. So um, that kind of uh, ignited a lot of discussions about... uh, the, the, the raising fees and so on, but also uh, the the next question was like, okay, if we raise the fees of the projects, does that actually is that a condition to raise for for the worker workers' conditions to become better? Uh, yeah. Is that is that the direction of things of 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 workers' conditions improvement, or is this it is the other way around? So yeah, this is a standard discussion here as well. If, yeah. if you always have people try to organize workers saying we need to raise salaries and you always get the petit bourgeois typical response of uh, like from uh, from someone who sees themselves as like part of the small employer class like no what we need to do is raise fees yeah and, like that- you can, you would never be able to raise fees unless the workers force you to do it by raising by forcing you to raise their salaries that's the exactly only way like, you'll ever be it, in history it has been proven that every time uh, workers conditions uh, got better, it was through the action of the workers and not because Mm -hmm. a blessed employer said, I'm going to give you (laughs) maternity leave. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. Because I can afford it. (laughs) Yeah. Fees have been raised, so here, take all my money. (laughs) Or that somehow some sort of more effective professional cartel would create the conditions for them to have more generosity. There is no universe in which, like, even though it's not only that, employers are not even able to raise fees unless they're forced to. Exactly. Employers, in order to raise fees without bottom pressure, they need to cartelize. And they can only cartelize if its capital is very concentrated and there's only like a, a, a handful of very big employers, which is not the reality. And when they do that, they never when they're very big capital, very concentrated capital. Yeah, they obviously don't. They raise. don't give money to workers. Obviously, <laughs> they have extreme control over the mechanisms that keep workers down. That's yeah. why they're big. Yeah. yeah, and also they. I mean, people talk about the, there were like a few central questions when we started, and this was one of them. Like the kind of question that pops up every time a new member, someone new arrives. This was one of these questions, and. The thing is, uh, they, people talk a lot about uh, regulating fees, and this is not even uh, possible or legal within the European Union. You can't uh, regulate because it's cartelization. Yeah, you can't yeah. Re- regulate uh, fees, so that's not even an option. There's, <laughs> even if that works, it's not an option. So let's talk about the options. Yeah, and and also uh, real. Understanding this condition that there is an employer and there is an employee and that we're not all the same was really important, specifically in the sector of architecture, where first we get out of, uh, of, we graduate with this uh, idea that we're all going to be our own, um, we're going to be on our own and doing our own projects and so on. And then suddenly, but the sector works in a completely different way. There's uh, 87% of of people working in architecture are actually employees. Uh, So it's not the liberal profession that that we've been taught. Well, maybe on this point about 
kind of recognizing that the discipline is split between employees and employers. Maybe if you could tell us a bit more about how those early meetings went and how the aim of forming an actual workers union developed. So um, like Christina said before, um, deciding to create a union was um, a long process, uh, a collective process that that really took a while for us to say, yes, this is what we're going to do. But the idea that there could be a union was there in the, even in that very first uh, debate we had in the coffee shop, um, when we promoted it uh, in social media, like the text that was there in the event, we already talked about uh, creating a new platform that we said, maybe an association, maybe a union, we don't know yet, uh, that would be able to represent workers and claim better wages, job stability, and uh, career progression, all these things that we didn't have and still don't have in architecture. So um, the idea was there, and uh, a lot of the work that we did at the beginning was both to understand where we stood, like, what are the actual conditions, working conditions of uh, work, architect workers in Portugal today? And what are the real possibilities of acting in this field? What can we do? So um, um, there was some discussion in the beginning, those few central questions that I talked about um, that kept popping up and that took a lot of time uh, in the meetings, uh, like really a, a lot of time in those meetings, <laughs> there were this this question of raising fees or raising salaries, um, whether the movement should include um, employers or not, there should be a clear right. distinction. Uh, and then um, whether we should be a union or we should be something about wider platform that would focus as well in other questions such as housing and that kind of issues that are usually come along when people start talking about like the role of the architects and so on. So these were um, very uh, central questions for a long month uh, when we started. Mm. Um, so uh, I think one of the first big steps we took was to decide to meet like every week. We started meeting every week and we moved away from the coffee shop <laughs> and we started relying on like the solidarity from residents associations and other unions, like this kind of movements and organizations that uh, let us meet in their uh, quarters and talk to us. We started having this di direct contact with uh, the way they worked and how uh, th this kind of collective movements uh, could work. And so there were, there were debates and then at a certain point you started connecting with other organizations and more and more started thinking about it in employee employee terms and worker terms yes that argument uh, went out somehow um i think uh, it did and not only within the group so um 
these discussions took a long time, but at the same time, we were trying to be operative and do something. So that's when when we started taking like the first big decisions that would kind of define what the movement was. And um, so I think one of these big decisions were these research groups that we created that did, um, uh, what were the words we had settled for? <laughs> <laughs> briefs. That it yes. briefs. Briefs, yes. <laughs> that it is briefs. This was, a, this was a small translation uh, <laughs> issue we've had. <laughs> that it is briefs in the, like, in, on different topics. One of them was, of course, uh, understanding what working conditions was were. So uh, reading all these reports, connecting with people who were working on uh, uh, research on how liberal professions were evolving in Portugal, doing our own our own surveys on architectural workers, and I, this was very important because on one side it, it confirmed with numbers what we already knew, like uh, that kind of information on how much do architecture workers make, um, how many unpaid overtime do they work, how much unpaid overtime do they work, um, how many uh, architects uh, architects are actually salary, salary wage workers yeah. <laughs> and how many yeah. are employers. This was very important for us to have an idea, a clear idea of what was going on and then to inform people, start informing people on social media and uh, yeah, first on social media um, about uh, what was going on and uh, so that people could start identifying with what, what we were saying. And, and becoming self-aware of yeah. the of the situation, because uh, if you don't talk uh, to people uh, about your own working conditions or you don't have a global knowledge of of the sector, uh, everything is very abstract, and you don't you're not a- able to compare with um, other professions and to understand how bad things are. Uh, and this was. Uh, informing making people aware of what was going on even the ones that especially the the workers in architecture um was was key to to create the the sense of the 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 need for action after that yes um i think knowing that it's not you that you're not me you don't not you don't have a very small wage because you're doing something wrong it's just how things are for everyone and that creates uh, an idea of a collective and like <laughs> yeah. uh, gives you a momentum to connect with your peers and colleagues right. and start talking about this. And I think this was very important in those central questions from the start disappearing because um, of course, some of them, for some of them, we had clear answers, like the idea of fees versus salaries, but others we didn't. And it, there were ongoing discussions that we could <laughs> be in those meetings until 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. discussing never-ending topics. But when we started really focusing on this and having uh, informing people on, on this and having them connect with us on those uh, working conditions that they felt themselves, that's when uh, the, these topics just 
went away. And when we had new people in meetings, those people were there to talk about their working conditions and not so much to raise these questions again. Hmm. So I think that was the the big shift that we had. It was like deciding to focus on that. And that brought people to us on those conditions, on those terms. And yeah, and creating this common platform. Yeah. Like the uh, the other thing that the, the the inquiry that we organized was really important for. Uh, I've I've mentioned the eighty seven percent of wage workers, but actually only about sixty two or sixty three percent of people um, uh, answered uh, to 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 be a, a wage worker. But then when you actually start to real to to analyze uh, their the, the type of contract or non contract that they have, uh, and and that the fact that they a hundred percent of the of, of of the time of people that say that they're freelancers, for example, uh, or independent workers, a hundred percent of their time is actually working for 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 the same uh, employer. Then then the ide- these ideas start to to break and demystify, mm-hmm. and and we start to it it becomes obvious that there is a a large group of people that have. Um, the, the the salaries are not only the problem is the the type of contract or the fact that they are non-existent and and so on and so forth because then if you don't have a contract then there's a bunch of conditions that are not met and even knowing that there are a lot of that even knowing uh, labor law um, gives you an, an idea of how bad your situation is before you know it before you know that it's not legal to work more than two hours a day uh, over your uh, over the eight hours over your over time or what that that was another another thing that was important to to realize is that uh, um, before uh, workers becoming self-aware of their situation there was a lot of that attitude of like oh it it is what it is like this is this is the way the country works or whatever but actually most things are written in the law uh, and it's there, and the the worker the, the 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 conditions there are supposed to be met are written down, but they're just not applied, and there's no no kind of um, uh, regulation re- control control oh, yeah. of 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 that. Uh, yeah, exactly. The the other um, uh, research groups. The, so we're talking about the characterizing the profession. Uh, but there was also uh, a group studying similar structures, like similar unions, so so that we could understand how they organized. Uh, there was a group uh, focusing on discrimination and precarity, uh, and again, the, this idea to understand, like studying the actual reality and 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 throwing all the information that we would got out to the peoples for that for them to to become aware of their own situation. Um, and different forms of collective organization, uh, and these these research groups. The the main idea is to be created like a solid base, so that we could every time the the movement was approached, not only for us to to um, create our own um, um, thinking and get to our own conclusions in a, in a solid way, but also to every time we were. Uh, challenged by other organizations or other people, we were able to give a solid response, a consistent one, and also uh, 
to justify the direction the directions we were taking yeah and that, yes also this might be professional bias but i think this research was incredibly incredibly important for us um, for us to understand what we were doing for example the discrimination and precarity um, uh, brief um, where we started by realizing that like the difference a wage difference between women and men in architecture in Portugal is 30%, which is shocking. Mm-hmm. But then from there, uh, we go to all the other things that have to do with uh, women being asked in interviews if they are planning to get pregnant or um, uh, our friends be... Which is um, illegal in Portugal. It's illegal yeah, to ask that question. Our women friends... Uh, Uh, constantly doing ad- administrative work in offices while our men friends to go to uh, go to go to site, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah because, and, and that's not because, and that's a choice of the employer. They're just exposed to certain act, certain tasks because of your gender, and that's and and that yeah. still happens. And, and there's all kinds of justifications for that. Oh, because. The team on site is mainly male, so it's actually uh, it's it has not nothing to do with you. It, it's 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 just better. It's it has to do with them. It's just better for them and to deal with them uh, if it is a male. But then nothing will they ever change. They won't respect. They won't respect uh, orders coming from a woman exactly. in the construction site, which is which not is even not, which is not, not even true. true. It's an exactly. incredible middle class prejudice of uh, construction of, of of working class yeah. construction workers. Yeah, exactly. It's not even true. So, uh, and and these things have to be broken from from uh, from the office, not uh, and not expect, not not be uh, patient towards these kind of prejudices. But somehow they were being um, extended with these kind of attitudes. Um, and I think what like what we do with this information, I think so. What can we do to solve this? What are the answers to this? And the answers to this is a union, because <laughs> <laughs> the best way to make sure that men and women are on the same level is, um, I don't know the word for this in English. Collective labor negotiation. Collective, yeah, yeah. When, when there's a clear career path, um, well, then wages are the same for um, men and women when you can collectively bargain. Uh, when you have the support in from your co-workers to go and complain. So the answer was a union. And I think this was a... I think, I think you're being ideologically slanted. I think you could have just as easily decided to do public awareness campaigns to <laughs> overwhelmingly male employers to stop discriminating against women workers. But, but in, a, in a way we've done... <laughs> In a way, we've done that, but it, that's uh, but that's that's just not enough, is it? But it, the the after after this uh, uh, creating a group, creating making sure that it is solid and that there's active members uh, that are not dependent on two or three people. That it's it's an actual group working. Then there's this research coming, and the and there was a. Uh, the 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 movement became really good online and at just like showing the uh, making campaigns online and and showing the results and so on to to create this platform 
and then the 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 obvious next step is to act upon it and and that was to become we we couldn't be a a, a movement like an informal movement forever it, that that wouldn't take us anywhere it would have to be a formal union i think that will take us to talk about covid but before <laughs> yeah. that, I just want to give another number regarding awareness campaigns that like this 30%, uh, the 30% difference uh, between uh, men and women uh, wages are just for wage workers. Like uh, female employees yeah, that was really interesting, make actually. 5% less than male employees. So... Wait, 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 wait. Employers. Employers. Yes, employers. Employers. Yes, employers. Exactly. So once, once uh, uh, that was really interesting when we realized that whoever is actually an independent worker, like a, a proper independent worker or an employer, that these differences are... Uh, they still, they're still a gender difference, they're but still way there, smaller. Yeah. Way smaller. And, but it's wage workers that, that suffer the most from yeah. this. Uh, from this so gender gap. oppression is a form of class oppression. Is the conclusion you're from? <laughs> <laughs> it was there. We, we didn't make it up. It was in the numbers. And, uh, so, Logic and facts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess there's obviously COVID is something to talk about. We'd also like to discuss maybe like how you dealt with some of the unique characteristics of architecture as a, as a, as a sector, like how you actually organize architectural workers who might be split across multiple small firms. Yeah, this is... Like some of the specifics about organizing... This is, I think this is a point where like you're, up till now you've told the story of essentially functioning as a, a kind of a collective group that is doing a lot of work, but it's not actually organizing workers yet. It's, it's doing a kind of preparatory work that is leading in that direction, but not yet quite there. Um, but you've also raised several points that kind of almost explain why that was the case and almost kind of necessary. Like the, the, the pulverization of workers across a, a, a wide array of small employers, for example. The fact that a worker is in contact with maybe one or two other workers. And the, the notion that they are they are in a state, you know, Christina, you were talking about that earlier, like the, the, the awareness raising of your media presence and of the information you guys were, being, were putting out there. Um, the effect that it has on the consciousness of a worker that is very isolated in their work and they don't even know, they don't even kind of quite understand that their condition is standard. Uh, and it's shared by basically almost everyone else uh, who, who, who is an architectural worker as well. That, like, that isolation in itself is an organizational hurdle, right? And it's why it's very hard for like organizing architectural workers like this becomes like an extreme problem. Or like... You can't like jump directly into organizing workers directly because the the company is tiny, and there's a million like there's there's spread around. So like, how you made the leap from these kind of information gathering, uh, like constructing a serious image of a dedicated group of people actually committed to to working on this. Uh, gaining a, kind of a presence, ch- uh, acting at the level of consciousness raising. Um, but then how do you make the leap to actually becoming an organization that is actually organizing workers and directly helping them at a practical level? And that coincides with the shift to with the shift to the COVID emergency condition, right? Um, I think there are two things that we can talk about here. Like 
The first is the step of going, uh, trying to meet more and more people in person and uh, like stop uh, moving away from being a social media platform. Or a group based in Porto. Or, and a group based in Porto. So yes, mm. those were two things that we tried to move away from. Uh, at the end of 2019, when we organized a first assembly in Porto, um, that was uh, the the idea was to present the movement's manifest, which we had been working for some time, and <clears throat> so that manifest would clearly define our role and so what the discussion was going to be in the movement. Um, and uh, but the idea was to go to people and meet them in person and uh, moving away from social media. Um, this was also where we got uh, media coverage for the first time, which was um, uh, an important step in people taking us seriously, <laughs> um, right. unfortunately. Um, uh, and then after that assembly, which had like 200 people in Porto, which is quite a lot, uh, if you know the dimension of the city and the amount of architects working there. This, yeah, was, I mean, assembly, I, I, this was assembly uh, in which the manifest was was approved. Yeah, yeah. and the movement uh, kind of became something more formalized. After this assembly, we... Yeah, 200 had, people in a room is not nothing. No, it, no, it is. Um, so, like many people went to the assembly, then joined the movement. So we started to understand that meeting people in person was a really important thing to do to have them uh, understand what we're about and uh, join us. And so we planned uh, like a first plan towards. We already kind of knew we wanted to be a union at this point, um, and that was present in the manifest, more or less. And so we had a plan of uh, a year's work uh, towards formalizing the movement into something more concrete, uh, where we were going to go across the country uh, doing meetings with people and taking guests to talk about all these issues that we had encountered up to this point. But this was late 2019, so uh, a couple of months later, COVID happened. Um, and that changed things quite a bit. And surpri surprisingly... Uh, it, it helped. No, it, it, it was not that it helped. It was that we were prepared for what was yeah. going on. We could handle COVID. Or it wasn't a setback. Yeah. I think that's that's the, the better word. It wasn't a setback as previously uh, people yeah. thought it would be for a movement like this. Um, the this this year plan kind of had to be uh, rethought mm -hmm. and rewritten. Um, but but actually, uh, it it marked two things: the expansion of the movement and the the, the um, the people from other parts of the country were able to join meetings that initially were 
face to face and now went online. So suddenly people from other cities could join. Yes. Uh, um, yes. So that was that like going, uh, having meetings on Zoom was actually something good for us because we didn't, we had no idea what to do uh, to take the movement out of Porto. We were discussing that quite a bit. Like, how can we organize? Like Portugal and Lisbon, are these going to be two different organizations because we can't meet at the same time? Uh, um, how are we going to do this? How can we expand? And this, yeah, COVID in this sense made it easier because people from Lisbon just started coming to the meetings and this was very important. Uh, and from other, yeah, other places. From, well. And from other places, of course. But then uh, other another thing happened, which was like, in the first month of after we are all sent to our homes, uh, in the first week when we were all sent to our homes uh, to isolate, um, we got so many messages on social social media, like more than we have had in the last in the previous year. So much people asking for help. Um, because they were sent home without pay, uh, because they were made, they were forced to go to work uh, in their offices, even though there was COVID and we didn't even know what that what meant at the time. So people were rightly scared, uh, and so like <laughs> we couldn't handle that kind of uh, that amount of uh, help people were asking of us. So that meant that in order to do what we had said we were going to do, we had to reorganize uh, deeply within the movement and actually have people dedicated to helping the, these people that, <laughs> that were being fired, uh, that were forced to work um, in their offices, that were sent home without any conditions to work. Like everything was, we saw very, very ugly things in this period. Yeah. And, uh, so we dedicated a group to helping these people. To, and this group started... Um, so you, you, you just basically started doing casework of the like kind a, that unions yeah, do. Exactly. Like a, a, there was a hotline uh, basically mm-hmm. created to, uh, to answer people's questions and, uh, and, and talk with them anonymously. People could keep anonymous if they wanted and... Uh, but basically to try and help their their situations, and so suddenly the the, the movement was already doing unions work without being a yeah. union. And of course, we were not prepared to do this. We we, had, we didn't have a lawyer. We, we didn't. Yeah, we couldn't even provide legal advice. That that wouldn't be. <laughs> So we had to connect with existing unions um, to help us help people. And that was a, a very big step that this group that was created, and they had to be like this closed group so that to, anonym, to keep contacts anonymous and have this kind of contained group that did this. And this group connected with Porto's uh, Unions, union, like the <laughs> union federation, of unions, the federation, <laughs> yeah. union, and uh, started having actual actual meetings with workers. Like people would talk to us. We would uh, we would uh, ask them if their coworkers were in the same situation and try to 
make it so that we would meet with more than one person because it's, it's much easier to bargain negotiate when people are on the same page. And we started connecting with unions and that was uh, a complete transformation of the movement that that was as <laughs> it, it was it, it was one of the, the the biggest steps to 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 strengthen the idea that the union was the the direction we had to go uh, we had to take the um, so at this point or more or less at the same time that that year plan uh, was um, rewritten we called it Operation Sugonha. Which, is, which means Operation Stork, <laughs> which is pretty good. It sounds really good in English. I quite like it. Um, and and basically, um, the the this this operation, the 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 way it was organized, um, it was organized in pretty much three moments, in which we wanted to reach different parts of the country. And, and use those moments to answer one question that would basically build up uh, on to, to the creation of the union or create this, mom- this uh, building up a momentum to that creation. Yeah, it's stark because it's like the goal of the operation is to deliver the union, right? <laughs> it's deliver the baby, yes, exactly. <laughs> that was the idea. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, was, it was quite tricky to figure out how this was still during COVID and how we could do these kind of decentralized meetings throughout the country within the, all the regulations that were in place. Um, But, but we, we knew that that was, that was um, key for, for the movement to be successful. Um, the, 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 The goal of these meetings was to meet people in person, obviously explain our work, our goals, uh, why our positions were the way they were in certain matters. Because again, a lot of people that came to the meetings, they heard of us or, but they weren't, the, a lot of them had never read the manifest. Like they, they, they didn't really know uh, how much has had been built up till that point. So you'd kind of have to start the story every single time you'd meet a new person, but it was just part of the of the gist. We already knew that that was that that was yep. what had to be done. Um, with organizing these meetings came also, or that they they happened through a a, a large com- a campaign, not only online but on the streets. A lot of uh, posters being glued a little bit everywhere in the country. Right. Um, and also, uh, there was we participated in different events and started to uh, go have um, be interviewed in the local and national media channels and newspapers to spread the word. Basically, um, there was a lot of discussion about the worth of these decentralized meetings within the movement as well, because they took a lot of work, and and sometimes you would meet three people, four people, five five people. And 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 a lot of people are worried if the if the the amount of effort um, justified what the, the results, uh, but it or or actually the results just <laughs> justified the amount of effort, but but they did uh, 
just because you need uh, it, it's it's people person by person that you build a movement. So you, you need to reach uh, one by one to get a big group. And every um, most of uh, most of all, every direct contact or face to face conversation that you'd have would be stronger and have a long la- longer lasting effect that any post online that you would do or it, it would just uh, have a, a, um, a stronger effect on the person and and most probably get a new active member into the movement, which was what we were also looking for. Yeah, we would meet five people and then three would join and they would talk right. with, with their friends. And so it was much more... Effective oh, yeah. in a way, yeah. Even though it took a lot of work. And we did like how many meetings? Three. We had uh, so we had uh, one in Lisbon, one in Coimbra. I know uh, uh, these were the big ones. Yes. These were the plenaries. We had uh, like three big <laughs> meetings, and then for each meeting, we had preparatory meetings where we wanted to find people with, from those places that would help us prepare these meetings. So. I think we had like 10 or something. Yeah, in different cities. <laughs> in different cities. And this this was a lot of work and there's, there was a lot of discussion. Uh, but like Christina said, I think it was key as well. Each uh, moment that we're talking about. So the first one, the, the way they were organized was that they, they they lasted two or three months. There were the, they had these... Um, Uh, smaller meetings in different cities to prepare for the bigger plenary in one of these three cities, Lisbon, Coimbra and Braga. Um, Each moment, so the the first plenary in Lisbon tried to answer the, the, the question, what is a union? The second one, what for? And the third one, for whom and by whom? Uh, And in each plenary, uh, we would basically discuss uh, a, a section of the bylaws that were being written on the background. Um, so besides these meetings, besides the campaign, uh, the we created a bylaws committee, which was a group of people inside the movement that was responsible to research and analyze other unions' bylaws, compare them with the manifesto, and draft what we thought uh, the bylaw, uh, uh, this document should be that would represent the movement that we wanted to, that we had and we wanted to have, uh, or the union that we wanted to have. There was a lot of, uh, uh, the, the draft was discussed internally in the, the uh, biweekly meetings that we'd have. Um, there the, was also discussed with specialists namely from CGTP, the, that Federation of Unions, that it also they also helped us uh, on this a lot. By the way, in Portugal, for people, for most of our listening bases, uh, UK and US-based, uh, Portugal has a kind of a strong uh, national federation of unions. Uh, like in, in, in Britain, there's like many different union federations of different... Uh, there's, a, there's a bigger one, but there's like a... In, in Portugal, what the... What, what they are describing is like a, the key, like national federation of unions that is providing all of this support. It's like directly from the m- union movement as a whole. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and they, I, I just want to find this for. for yeah, for no, it's it's really important because they gave us uh, support on this on on these specific subjects, but also a lot of um, basic uh, organization support on if we needed a space to meet and so on. That, that they 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 were always there to help, and that that was that was key. Buses to go to Lisbon over. Like transportation, yeah. transportation as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we uh, th there was this committee that was writing the bylaws, and this was, and I guess this is an important thing. This was an open document within the movement, uh, and each section was discussed in the bi biweekly meetings that we had, and then in the plenaries. So, and everyone could uh, read it and comment, and we would discuss bit by bit, so that we. Uh, and that helped us get to a point where we were um, uh, confident that the bylaws that we had, the document that we had, was representative of this big group of people, and that uh, everyone more or less understood the, the the key points of it. Because there's a lot of obviously um, a lot of bureaucratic articles that are not particularly important in, or that they're not ideological or anything like that. But there were others that were really important to be defined and discussed because they will uh, influence the way the union works later on. Right, right. Yeah, something that I wanted you to, I want you to like develop a bit more because I think it's a kind of a very important thing as far as I'm aware that you've done that sets apart what kind of organization you were building and how, why you were able to become what you've become is like, what do you do with a new member? You were discussing like getting new members, but what you're describing is not just like getting more people to be in the mailing list and to like formally put their names on a list and that's it. And saying there, you were like, you have a policy. If I'm, a, if I, if I'm right, I, I think I think I'm right. Yes. You have a policy of a new member is someone we want to give tasks to. Like you want to engage members in the work. It's not just we have another person. You know, yes. you know, to increase the number of members. No, you actually want to turn members into engaged activists. Getting yes, getting members was so much work that we had. A, we have. We had. I don't know anymore but we had a group dedicated to uh, organizing new members and old members and keeping people engaged and working so yes i think that is a very important uh, point because it's also something that you don't know when you start organizing a movement like this just how much work you're going to have just have having people there doing stuff and and that is true. So when we we have uh, that very organized now, it it wasn't always like that. But now we have these different uh, tasks, um, and each task as a member who is responsible for this task, and then um, the uh, other members that help and work on those tasks, and then we also have those research uh, lines that continue until today and we try to keep them as places for um, 
discussion of more deep stuff than those we discuss in meetings, because those meetings are often very operative, like what we're going to do about this specific thing that we have to do right now. And like deeper discussions are then relegated to these research groups. And getting to this organization, I think it was like two years before we had something like this and, and that we understood that we needed a group of people would coordinate the, the, all these tasks and all these people working. And so uh, I think it was like last year that we decided we'd have like four people who were in charge of... Um, oh, two years ago already. Two years ago, yeah. In yeah. 2020, at least. <laughs> that <Is> goes by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because there have been a lot of... yeah. Uh, so for people that would coordinate these tasks and th because it is such a draining task, uh, these four people change every couple of months and like everyone in that is an active member ends up in this coordination group at some point. Yeah, it was, <laughs> uh, it, it was a rotational thing yeah. and... Right. Uh, we yeah we have been talking about this building the movement building the movement mm -hmm. what what that actually meant in your day to day life was that you knew you'd have uh, at least a general meeting every two weeks uh, in the evening uh, online or face to face depending on, on where you were <laughs> yeah uh, you would be as a new member integrated into a research group like one of those briefs that we're talking about and also like a task group and where we're talking about the tasks is uh, it could be uh, the campaign mobilization um, organization of meetings uh, the bylaws committee uh, social media social media there was all kinds of different uh, departments let's say <laughs> Uh, and you would be automatically integrated into one of those. You would obviously, people would try to understand your interests and what you're more comfortable with because pe some people would come and say, oh, please, I'll, I'll do writing, but please don't, uh, don't, don't ask me to, uh, like, I don't know, talk in public. Or other people would be like, uh, I, I'm, I'm not available for much, but I can... Um, glue some some posters around this, the city from time to time if needed so you'd you would have a, a big excel list list of all the members if they were uh, how active they were how much time they had available um, and then this group in charge of talking yeah. to members and yeah. updating this big excel with everyone yeah. like so <laughs> at the end of meetings when we had new people coming uh um, some of us would, would stay after the meeting and explaining all this that we're explain, explaining right now to these new members, like the movement works like this. We have these task groups, these research groups. Um, do you want to think about where you want to work with us? And then we'll, uh, you, we'll put you in contact with the pe people responsible for these tasks. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, and yeah, I, I mean, thought... I Go ahead. I'm just going to say that uh, this everyone has completely different lives and work schedules and so on. Uh, so we knew that uh, keeping the movement alive uh, had to work with that. We couldn't really go like, 
uh, oh, uh, we need someone to do this, so you're going to do this, and it's uh, three hours of your week every week, and it doesn't matter if you can do it or not. This is what it means to be in the movement. It it wasn't like that. Yeah. It it we would always assess the people's availability and will to give time to the movement. Mm-hmm. So uh, and it and it, it was what it was like. People, some people were very active and were giving a lot of time, and other people weren't. And sometimes you were very active for three months, and then you'd say look, I have a big submission or I'm going away. I don't know. And so I uh, don't count me in for, for the next couple of months. And, and we would just have to work with this. With built uh, redundancy in tasks to be sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, there is a kind of a convergence here between uh, an effective organization and and the democratic organization. As in like, you want to get uh, like groups of people who are open, who are kind of open groups of people who are constantly trying to integrate new members, uh, assigned to each task so that there is constant discussion and uh, collective uh, brain power applies to everything, right? And that also creates the redundancy. Like if someone has to go away, it's fine because everything has a certain collective dimension in the way that the tasks are organized, right? Uh, But I think what you're describing in... Like the... the, um, essentially the, the philosophy of turning every new member that is organized into themselves an organizer, um, which is almost kind of necessary because they're in, in, in the kind of work dynamic that you've guys been describing, there's always more work than people available to do it. There's all like, everyone is always exhausted. Right? So there is always a need to like, if you can get more manpower to do the work, you need to really try and take advantage of that. Uh, just because of like the, the needs of the individual people <laughs> that are already doing the work. But that also creates the conditions for expansion, right? And, the, and so you have a kind of an expanding group of people who are not just representing more people, but are also act, actually more and more people dedicated to this kind of militant organizing work. And it also creates a kind of a confidence in, in the in the movement, like someone who joins and realizes, so, oh, this is actual real work that these people are doing. I want to do some of it to the best of my capacity. Of course, this always needs to be very flexible. Uh, but it also gives, you the, gives new members the notion that, like, this is real. This is not just uh, something that they put up on the internet every once in a while and, like, two or three people putting up their opinions. No, this is actual real work. And I can contribute with at least a bit. And that that yeah, exactly. inspires confidence and trust and uh, like dedication in new members as well and in and in the movement as a whole. Um, a confidence in the movement has confidence in itself and people outside of the movement gain confidence in the movement to join it. And when they join it they get even more, right? So I I think what you're describing is extremely important as how to actually construct a militant activist organization that can actually achieve results. Yeah, I, I, we found that the, I, I don't think anyone knew this was the way it should be, but it was just slowly through experience. Yeah. Uh, we, we found out that this was what, what, gain, uh, what got us results, basically. <laughs> what we needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been we've had you for quite a while now uh, discussing this. Maybe a final thing we could we could discuss is some of the more practical, specific issues of actually becoming a union. 
legally and officially. So not just the difficulty of organizing towards creating a union, but actually becoming a union and what kind of really practical decisions you have to make in the architectural sector about about that. Um, yeah, I think um, there were some issues that we encountered when we were writing the bylaws that were uh, very specific um, to architecture because of the way um, it works. Um, the, the first one that I'm going to address is like the reason why I'm not in the, the union right now, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, who could join the, the union? That, that was a, a central question as well that, took, that we discussed a lot. It was not straightforward at all because we were not the movement of architects, we were a movement of architecture workers. So at this point, we had to define what we what were architecture workers and who were the architecture workers that the union was going to represent. Um, so um, <clears throat> up to this point, architecture workers in the movement meant anyone who worked in uh, architecture. Uh, they could be landscape architects, urban planners, um, people who did models, people <laughs> who did renders. Um, um, and it didn't matter if they were still like, of officially trainees uh, or if they were not considered architects by the professional association. It was all about do you if they worked in the architecture sector. That was our definition up to this point. And basically, if they shared the same workspace. Yes, the idea was that uh, it wouldn't be it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't be operative to have. A movement of architects that would separate all these different um, people that work in architecture offices and that share the same spaces and that thus can organize together. And that had the same challenges and, yes. so, and, and had the same working conditions. It defined by the same employer. Right. Um, and that left, uh, left some... Uh, what's the word? Uh, ambigu ambigu ambiguous. Ambiguous. Yeah. Um, for example, um, do, do we does the movement represent students, um, researchers, uh, and architects working in the public sector? Mostly uh, because architects working in the public sector face completely, not completely, but very different uh, problems than architects working in the, or architecture workers working in the, in the private sector. Because public sector employees have uh, defined careers, um, defined wages, uh, career progression. They work with other professionals within public institutions. They don't share the same spaces that we were talking about. So, and they have unions yes, that, that, that exist that, that represent them and organize them as like exactly. unions of public the, sector workers. That Architects the, or not, it doesn't matter. That was the, the question that we, but the central um, idea when we were writing the bylaws and right. we had to formalize what's going, who is going in and who is not going in. Is that the public sector already have unions uh, that are more 
well, helpful to them, they're more useful to them because they focus on their problems um, the, and the problems of the people who work with them. And our movement, our union will never be as useful to those people as their own unions are. Um, so it's not, it's not so much about just like architectural identity as a discipline. But exactly. It's much more specific to the working conditions. And, exactly. Yeah. It has it has more to do with representing whoever works in, in the sector under certain conditions and not yeah, so much upon, and, and the ones that we can act upon and not specifically the subject or the kind of the branch of knowledge. Yeah, um, yeah. But obviously, having said that, we we hope as a union to create links with the unions that represent the architects and uh, th that work in the public sector and because there's obviously things to discuss there's obviously things to to align um, uh, and directions of action to to define together but uh, the the kind of action that we can have as a union towards a private employer or a, a state employer is just completely different uh, for us we would include as many people as possible but then we realized that we kind of had to limit that to uh, increase our chances of success as of, of the action of what we actually do yeah. and who who do we represent um, the, the, the best basically and who, who are we uh, efficient to, to represent as a, as a union yeah like looking for, at this from outside this is an extremely interesting. Uh, moment. It, it, uh, on one hand, it, it basically feels like a kind of a culmination at the end of the process of union making of like the, uh, and the, the, what wasn't clear yet at the very beginning of the process, which is kind of this difference between organizing architects and organizing workers. Uh, and when you, when you focus on organizing workers, you realize that it doesn't matter what the degree is what the degree people are, have is uh, the field of knowledge in which they are and etc. this kind of common disciplinary identity. What matters is the labor relation. Like uh, unions organize people around the labor relation, right? So it, it's about the employers people have. And so there's going to be plenty of people who aren't architects technically who have the same labor relation as people who are architects. Um, so you realize that you're like, what, what you I think you've realized is that like this is a union of people who don't have a union who work in the architectural sector. Um, yes. It's not uh, a group of architects, like an association of architects. And this is like, the, uh, there was a, yeah. a an early moment of indecision around this that became more and more clear. And then it sort of came back with a vengeance at the end or like <laughs> forcing really a moment of extreme decision. Yeah. And you realize architect, people who are architects who work for a city hall have a union that organizes people who have the same labor relation as them who aren't architects. And that's the operative form of organizing those workers and those unions already exist, right? So so in the, it seems like it, 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 it becomes kind of this notion that it's much more operative for us as a union of architects to actually people in that situation that come to us, we push them into the union that makes sense for them and establish links with those unions, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have a, one of my very best friends works for the Porto City Hall and she wanted to join the union you've, ju you've just made. And then I told her you won't be able to and she was really disappointed. <laughs> as, as a lot of people, as a yeah. lot of people, yeah. 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 And, and, we, and we are disappointed to disappoint, but, <laughs> but it, it, this was, this was um, a, a necessary move. 
And but it, although we we try to be as within this uh, as you described so well uh, this uh, labor relation that that we can act upon, uh, we want we try to be as loose as possible, or as inclusive as possible in the bylaws. But still, we know that there's going to be a lot of ambiguous situations that we are not able to predict, right. also because the sector is constantly changing. Um, and it happened even in the in one of the last plenaries that um, someone approached us that had that had one of those ambiguous situations that didn't really fit in any of this, this. And I think we even changed slightly the description we had in the bylaws at that point because we were still discussing it. So t- in order to to allow for these people to to be integrated but in the the bylaws define that if there a, if there is a situation that is not quite clear then it's for the directorate to to uh, evaluate and yeah. and define if that member fits um, the, the the description or mainly it's not that is if the union is able to help him exactly. or that's her so, or not yeah. that's the yeah. important point yes yeah. can we help this person, does this person fit with, uh, like, what, what their action is, and yeah. not, like, an idea of they have to fit with certain conditions or and be landscape architects or urbanists or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's almost a, if, <laughs> if the action of the union fits them yeah. more than anything else. Uh, one of the other challenges that we found um, while creating the union and writing the bylaws, and this was something that we weren't predicting, uh, because we didn't know the law, <laughs> was uh, the way the unions are actually uh, defined by law is very much, uh, it's traditionally aimed for sectors with large companies of several dozen workers. Uh, and 99% of the offices in, in Portugal uh, have 10 or less employees. So automatically this dispersion of, of workers makes it really hard um, not only uh, in terms of uh, organization in, on in the field, but also uh, um, bureaucratically to organize a union. Uh, this obviously also contributes to the belief that a union is somehow a dated organization that doesn't fit the the, the reality of nowadays. Um, so. What we found, though, is that it is possible to work around these things. Uh, we wanted a structure uh, that um, in which the worker felt it was listened and was directly connected with the national directorate. That wasn't this abstract link. Um, Not like the movement networks. Exactly, that very much. That we, idea of assigning tasks and, uh, and connecting people to the movement by having them be an active part of the movement. That's what we wanted to. Uh, to mirror in the yeah, in the union the structure, um, and so a few things have to be uh, reimagined in a way, uh, namely the the, the union deputy, deputies and the way they are approached in the bylaws in in for for our union is is slightly different uh, from from a traditional deputy, but it it we believe it can still work. Uh, we don't want to get into too much boring detail on these things, but it we just had to the 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 law was clearly not completely made or thought for a situation or a sector like ours. 
but it is possible to work with it and adapt it, basically. It also feels that this is a like an issue that would be common f- to other sectors of like formal liberal professions trying to organize yeah. work. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and we there are ways to work around it, but it's not easy. And and some of these issues have been addressed by the Federation of Unions. The, the Federation of Unions saying these things have to change in labor law for like unions to organize today. So this idea that Christina was talking about, that unions are a dated form of organization, it's not unions. Unions know the, the, the challenges that they face and what, uh, like the problems that exist. But uh, the way the law is written, uh, it makes it very, very hard for professions like architecture or uh, lawyers or uh, like, uh, and, even, and even, and even but, but generally in the economy, the, the, the a systematic development under the last couple of decades of neoliberalism has been a kind of pulverization of employment. Yeah. Even as there is uh, a kind of capital concentration, like the the way in which large companies basically don't have workers anymore, they subcontract and that send subcontracted and subcontracted and subcontract. Uh, what used to be all workers of the same company. 30 or 40 years ago, are, have now been divided by decision of the top of a company into like a billion companies all the way down uh, that are that subcontract each other. And that itself is, a, is in like, makes, creates extra organizational hurdles and it blocks uh, unionization because all the workers don't have the same employer anymore, even though they kind of do. Yeah. Uh, so it, 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 there is an issue there um, where people who organize workers, unions, are kind of are constantly trying to adapt to the transformations in the work environment and uh, reorganize their organization to be able to actually represent reality. Uh, but yeah, like the law lags behind. And in fact, uh, interestingly enough, like, I mean, you have a debate usually uh, uh, in the legislature between, it's not about people who want to change labor law and people who want to keep it the same way as it's always been. Uh, it's people who want to change it in different ways. Yeah, capital employers and their governments have been actively trying to make unions obsolete using the full force of uh, state oppressive apparatus and everything since the, like the 70s. But it's a struggle, right? Yeah. This was all, the, all this work was done in the belief that the union figure is still uh, um, crucial and it's still. It doesn't matter the, the its shape or form, but it's still through that kind of organized collective action that something happens. So uh, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I guess the, the, the key challenge becomes, like the, we know what the organizational structure needs to be because we know the sector. We know how the workers work. We know the labor relations. And so we this is how we need to actually be organized. The law is behind. So what we need to do is figure out a way to make the, like what matters is the organization. Then we need to adapt to the law to fulfill the law while maintaining the importance of what the correct organization needs to be. Yeah, exactly. And then also maybe naively believe that the the more unions there are uh, adapting to the law and pointing out the issues in the law, 
maybe there's more strength to to eventually change it. But then if you only have a handful of unions complaining about it, then it's it's not or pointing that out. And the rest of the population thinking that the union is a, is is a, is dated and then just no no longer applies, then it will never have enough strength. Well, you've 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 all demonstrated that you can form a union. I mean, it's an incredible achievement to have created a national architectural workers union. Like that, something could be created in this moment, which seems like the most difficult. Moment. And it didn't take fifteen years; it took like three. Yeah, right? I think it's incredibly <laughs> inspirational and, uh, and empowering. <laughs> Thank you, in behalf of the movement. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, it, it, it's really important that we want we, a big reason why we want to obviously we wanted to interview you is because there are definitely like there are, there are trends in this direction basically everywhere we, we look. Uh, there is an attempt to unionize architectural workers. And unionized workers in general in non-unionized sectors, basically all over the place. But like a, 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 a successful example like yours, uh, we haven't seen yet. Uh, that was like actually not, able, no, no, not in a kind of a national scale, and 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 that was able to achieve so much in so little time. And it, I think it's really important. Like, there's, a, I guess, like here in the first world, we constantly hear this uh, that there is a kind of this notion of we need to do the organizational work. We need to do the organizational work. We want to go to the grassroots and do the organizational work, right? Uh, and that's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that it's going to take 20 years. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. Well, we've we've uh, kept you for quite a long time. We're really grateful for all that you've shared with us. We would like to uh, still maybe organize something uh, where you could be in conversation or, or reps from your, your union could be in conversation with organizers in in different different countries, different contexts, to kind of share and maybe talk through some of the more technical issues, which you know may may differ in different countries, but there might be parallels. Yeah, that um, I'm sure. I'm sure we would. Uh, we it would be a pleasure <laughs> from us. Can I just add that? Um, well, uh, the the movement became Sintark uh, officially on the. 30th of April of mm-hmm. uh, this year. Uh, the bylaws were approved uh, not long after. And now Operation Stork became Operation Anthill, <laughs> 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 where we're trying, we just started the unionization, un- unionization campaign, uh, basically to uh, all these active members becoming actually union members and that will come together with several initiatives and um plenaries and uh campaigns um we'll have to the next steps will be to define our headquarters which will be somewhere in porto just because it makes sense uh considering the history of the movement and we predict the or we we are aiming for a general electoral assembly the first one in november this year Amazing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to all of our Portuguese listeners who work in the architectural sector, um, <laughs> that who have not yet joined Sintark, which like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I mean, I expect the, our listeners to uh, to all have joined Sintark or be very aware of it and in the process of, the, of joining, obviously. Uh, or to our listeners in Portugal and to our listeners not in Portugal, uh, I'm, we will do what we can to 
continue talking about this and uh, make con- these kind of help make these kinds of institutional contacts between groups, the Portuguese group and similar groups, mostly in the UK and the US, which is um, well, already great. <laughs> we are mostly are. Do you want to share just last of all where uh, people can find more information, social media, that kind of thing? Plugs. It's mostly in Portuguese. Their social media. That's fine. So, so yeah. Yeah, you can can find us on syntark.pt, on Instagram, Facebook, and... We're just in the in the yeah. process. Like you're asking this in the in yeah. on the day. <laughs> I, I got an email while recording this with the new with information on the new website, uh, social yeah. media, and all of that. So things are being done right now. Well, we'll put in the description for this episode mm-hmm. your uh, links here uh, pages. Yeah, that would be great. It's syntark.pt. You can find everything, all information on <laughs> on, the, on the union and where to become a member and the next uh, activities that we're planning. Great. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, uh, that was Thank great. You. And, Thank uh, you. Thank you so uh, much. Incredibly inspiring and uh, like good job. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> now you just have like 10 times more work into the future exactly <laughs> we've just started now yeah, the baby is out <laughs> and now deal with it <laughs> thank you yeah okay. okay thank you so much bye 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 all right well that was a great interview ah, that was awesome uh this is probably our our best this is our best episode it's the most important episode for sure most useful episode uh it's possibly it's probably also our longest episode because we're not gonna we're not separating it into two no no it's one it's one big unit yeah commit (laughs) and our brave listeners who are listening to us now obviously have commit so uh, indeed well done to you So, uh, yeah, I guess the last thing to say is the obligatory plug for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'd like to support us, which we'd very much appreciate, please go to patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod and uh, pick one of our fun tiers, which are all identical. Indeed. In, in the reward. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, I don't know, like communism or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that was great. That was amazing. I'm really happy. Um, we'll keep tabs on on the labor struggle. Yeah. In architecture, obviously. And hopefully expand these contacts and maybe do something cool in the future. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. So thank you all. And uh, see you next time. Next time. Bye.